the United States is not perfect um, and that an authoritarian regime and takeover is very possible here and we shouldn't fool ourselves in thinking that it's not possible here. Um, I think a lot of people in the United States are used to thinking that that type of stuff happens in other countries because of you know neoliberalism and Western imperialism, but it is very possible here and that we should we all need to be prepared for it. Hello humans, it's Dan from Power Report. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, it is a pleasure and it is going to be worth it. We are currently talking um, as September is winding down and we begin into October and we begin the final stretch of the worst election of our lifetime so far. Hope y'all are staying with me. Hope y'all are doing okay. We will make it through it, I promise. With the SCOTUS race just heating up, especially after the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's become increasingly obvious, painfully so, that the Democrats do not in fact have a plan for what is about to happen. They still keep responding to the Republicans who have shown that they will lie about anything they said, they will turn back their word, they will turn back their message, so as to maintain and grab total power, complete and total power. They're not interested in playing nice with Democrats, yet Democrats seem interested in playing nice, at least on camera. It's almost as though Democrats didn't pay attention to the four years or four decades of Republican Party character development. Otherwise, they would have known that this is the coalescing of everything they argue for in the Republican mission. They want total power in the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judiciary branch. A lot of people's reasoning for voting for Trump, even though they like, disliked him as a person, is because that he would promise them conservative Supreme Court justice seats. And that's exactly what they're getting. Ever since making my bad news video, which you can watch at youtube.com slash Dan from the internet, of course, I've been trying to refocus my political analysis from something for passive news consumers to watch as the world is exploding, to something that empowers people who are watching what I make, to give them the tools they need to actually make a difference in the world around them for their community and for themselves. Folks, these are the days, hours, and minutes you have before shit really starts going down. And the Democrats don't have a plan for you. But luckily, I spoke to someone who does. My name is Mariam Navid. Um, I am a digital organizer and I am one of the co-authors of the Hold the Line Guide, um, a, a guide to defending democracy um, that a group of um, organizers and researchers um, put together just recently to give everyday people like a very realistic roadmap that they can use to stop Trump from essentially stealing the election. More of Power Report's upcoming guests will feature activists who are coming from the trenches around the country and around the world to really give us a sense of what is really needed for this moment and how budding, starting activists can really kind of ingratiate themselves in the space. Even though people power is grossly underrepresented in mainstream media, People power is still power, and that's something we're going to be talking about on Power Report here. So get your notes ready. You're definitely going to need them, and you're definitely going to want them. Miriam's an incredible guest with a lot of information, and you're going to want to know about it. Uh, just make sure that you follow at the Red Line Guide on Twitter and Instagram for more information, including a link to the PDF that we're talking about with all the information. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to Power Report wherever you are listening or watching so you don't miss more stuff like this. All right, let's get into it.
Miriam, thank you very much for coming on and making it through. I know there was like a couple of scheduling back and forth we had to do to make this happen, but I'm so glad to do this because um, I know you from college and um, I've seen some of the work you've done in activist spaces and I've been amazed by it and blown away by it. And so getting to talk to you about this very urgent thing, I think will be um, really great for um, the audience of Power Report. So um, when, I, when I first came across Hold the Line, I think it actually might have been something that you sent to me. I was like, okay, yes, this is a cool thing. Finally, there is um, like a direct document for people to be able to utilize and figure out what to do exactly in this moment. But I'm, of course, like a very politically um, kind of obsessed, I guess you could say, person. And so, of course, I'm wanting this thing. But what made you kind of realize that there or like you and the other co-authors realized that there was a need for this document to exist. Yeah, um, so this was a couple months ago. I mean, I, I, the work I do on a day-to-day -day basis is to essentially come up with like ways for everyday people to get involved in different movements. Like that's essentially what I'm constantly trying to experiment with, constantly trying to figure out. And with some of the organizations we were working with, this big question kept popping up of, are we actually doing enough? For like this election like we're trying to do like the standard like let's get everybody out to vote work but are we actually doing enough to make sure that every single person is going to be able to participate this year and that the election is actually going to be fair and free and that it's actually going to turn out the way elections are supposed to turn out um and the answer was no like we don't know if we're confident in that and um i think like a tipping point happened i think this was in june on june 1st um i think you probably remember this too when um, this was when the George Floyd protests were happening um, and Trump in Washington, D.C., he basically allowed both the military and the police to essentially shoot rubber bullets at protesters. Um, he also threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act, which basically gives him the power to use the military against civilians. And that was just like a big red flag for like a lot of us. And I, I'm sure it was a red flag for people across the country. And it was a realization that the United States is not perfect um, and that an authoritarian regime and takeover is very possible here. And we shouldn't fool ourselves in thinking that it's not possible here. Um, I think a lot of people in the United States are used to thinking that that type of stuff happens in other countries because of, you know, neoliberalism and Western imperialism, but it is very possible here and that we should, we all need to be prepared for it. Um, and if you look at previous nonviolent movements in history, um, people who have, you know, taken, you know, taken back their country from authoritarians, from dictators, they've done it through organized in an organized manner, in a concerted way, working together. And they've, it has taken them months, sometimes years to actually like succeed. And so we're a couple months out from the election and no one has a plan. Nobody is talking about this. Um, th and this was like a couple months ago when literally no one was talking about it. I think now people are starting to talk about it. It's starting to kind of touch the national narrative a little bit. But as organizers, we were all just like, uh, why are we all not talking about this? <laughs> and if we are talking about it, what are we actually going to talk about? And so I just, I, it was basically a freak out conversation, to be quite honest with my coworker. We were like, okay, maybe we need to start a Facebook group and just like, the whole country could just join this Facebook group and like we start Because fa Facebook will definitely like, save democracy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we're going to save democracy through Facebook. I don't know. Um, it started off like as a random conversation. And then 
we connected with other people um, who were having these similar anxieties and essentially we, the four of us eventually came together and we were what's really funny is that the four of us are a totally random group of people um, like Unker and I um, both work at the the firm like at MNR. Um, Gifai is actually someone who actually went to Berkeley, um, and she actually was actually wasn't was um, involved in CalServe, and she was also a senator. Totally random. And then Hardy is a researcher um, and and like the the CEO of um, the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict. So he's like the researcher, kind of in our group. Um, so you've got like a, just randomly. I was gonna say you got like a really good team of people there. I mean, like there's a lot of like really um, inside baseball names there, like. Um, CalServe and like all these different things of basically all these different sort of activist spaces within um, communities of color that are kind of especially what you have talking about there getting together to work on this project so that's like that's like really fascinating I want to make the bulk of this interview like a, a lot of this I think you have a really good insight into what it's like to become a person in activist spaces and I want to kind of pick your brain about that because I think that'll also help to kind of get the idea of hold the line kind of really across. But um, yeah, I think that feeling of not knowing what to do and what to, how to really react to this kind of situation is something that's really prevalent with people. And this feeling of being sort of paralyzed with um, not knowing what to do is I think, um, not to use too much business of a phrase, but it's a market that is super untapped. So like before we really dig into hold the line, I want to ask the question, cause you were describing the idea of, oh, a lot of people don't believe this can happen here. And I think that's, I'm going to be talking about a lot of, I think, um, even though I'm a fan of movement building, I think there are a lot of barriers to movement building in the United States. But one of those is that like, yo, American exceptionalism is a hell of a drug. And we are fed that shit if you are growing up in the United States for um, decades and decades in what little educational history classes we do have. It's always, um, <laughs> slavery was a one hour lecture and we all got better after that. And it was kumbaya with all the other nations. Of course, there were bad references, but we all got along and we get we all make it right on Thanksgiving. Like we, we're taught mm -hmm. that American exceptionalism is not only the sort of apology for all of the um, things that have gone wrong with the country and all the um, misdeeds of the United States, but that like we are at this Francis Fukuyama type of end of history kind of dynamic where America is it. We're always going to be number one or have this sort of hegemony around the world. And I think the reality of not just the things surrounding the Trump administration or the Trump election were showing that that hegemony or that like overall power around the world on the world stage was ending for the United States. But that's all to say, um, what, what do you think are some of the, like, other than what is going on right now, do you think that's going to be a hard sell to people is just to tell people like, hey, this this could very easily, America could very easily be one of those countries that Anderson Cooper is reporting on CNN in like a tight black shirt where like this like disaster and mayhem going around the corner. He's saying, look at this disaster what's going on behind us. Like that can be America. That can be any country. Americans love to think that that's going to like, oh, that's another country and the global South that's away from us. No. How do you get Americans to kind of really snap into the understanding that this could happen here right now? Yeah, I think it's step one is getting rid of that American exceptionalism. Like we are not perfect. We need to unlearn the imperialist history that is just ca carrying on in our lives. I mean, the fact that honestly, this is a side note, but like the fact that we call ourselves America itself is a problem. It's super small detail, but like we are the United States that exists in North America, we are not the America. You know, there is a South America, there's a North America, there's other countries in the Americas. 
Um, and it's just this 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 like culture that we all have kind of just embedded ourselves in of thinking that we are the best country in the world and therefore the best people in the world. It's the same culture that stops like that prevents like immigrants from being welcomed fairly um, and just completely being vilified. You know, so I think it, it goes down to the core of us unlearning racism, unlearning like this Western imperialism that has basically like just been like thrown at us at a young age and it's going to happen through our education system it's going to happen when each of us takes the ownership upon ourselves to like really like be willing to be uncomfortable and like teach ourselves like you know you're, you're gonna have to teach yourself like there's no like federal government funding that's gonna like give you the curriculum honestly we live in this country that's just the reality um so that's like step one it's like per a lot of personal work in my opinion um the other thing i want to say is that like that I think we're already seeing the fact that the United States is not the best. Um, COVID-19 has done a great job of, I mean, I hate, COVID-19 is a horrible thing, <laughs> but this phenomenon has done a number on giving us like this perspective that um, our economic system sucks, um, our healthcare system sucks, people around us are dying, people around us are like suffering. We, a lot of us don't have basic needs. Literally like regular people are getting evicted with no mercy. It's literally a human rights crisis like across the board. Um, and I think people are starting to see it. I do think so. And that's where like a lot of the unrest quote unquote is happening. Um, and it's just a matter of really like taking that that unrest and, and transforming it into positive change. I think the, the thing that people don't get is that you have the power and the elected officials don't. And I think that's this, this like, this is the mistake we are all, we all kind of, I grew up with even, you know, like I grew up like super, you know, I grew up in a low income environment. Nobody told me like much about like how government works. Um, my classes were funded by Los Angeles Unified School District and they like barely invest any funding in like supporting teachers and stuff. Um, and I like, I don't really, in my head it was like, oh, this person like, the, this person in city council, for example, makes all the decisions. And the reality is that they don't. Um, in in like our in the in the hold the line guide, there's like an excerpt in there where we talk about how um, to win in this movement and in this fight, basically, we need to have power and we need to recognize that um, elected officials don't actually hold the power. Like Trump can, you know, Trump can get the military to go like suppress a protest in like Portland or and then maybe in Houston but he does not have the resources and the federal government doesn't have the resources to suppress the protest across the country with millions of people and so that is I think what the powerful thing is like if we can recognize that like you know like I don't know if you, you remember like there's like this one graphic actually of like this fish um, yeah yeah you know, it's like, like the, the if we like unite or die kind of thing <laughs> it's like the um it, all the fish joined together are more powerful than the one on its own. And you, you're talking about like the power that people have, like, what, welcome, can I point to the graphic? Yes, welcome to the show. You're on it. We're here. We're talking about power and like who has it, um, how people can have more of it. Um, that's really what it is. I really want to get into hold the line while we're like really getting into it. So like, what are, what are the actions that people should be taking between the time they're listening to this podcast, hopefully they're listening before election day, and um, election day. And we'll talk about what to do after that, but at least what to do in this like odd sort of like hellstorm moment where we're like in the last couple days or the last couple weeks of the campaign. Right. So there's, a, there's three things people can do. Um, one is get yourself registered to vote. 
Uh, two is get everybody you know registered to vote, essentially. Um, and when I say register to vote, it doesn't just mean like go on the website, you know, put in your name. Great, it's done. Elections are kind of complicated in this country and just really hard to understand, honestly. Especially like if you haven't voted before, it's very intimidating to like, let's say if you want to actually go to the polls, it's actually really intimidating to go there. And like nobody, there isn't, it's, it's really hard to see instructions oftentimes. Like you see a line, you get in line and you're just like, okay, am I doing this right? Am I not doing this right? Like, I, I feel like there is like a lot of um, just nervousness around elections too, like, especially if you're new to it. So, And that's not even throwing not COVID just, into the mix as well. Like that's going to make oh this all worse. Exactly. It's like, oh my God, do I like stand close to this person? Do I not? Like, why is there not a six foot marker here? I don't know. Um, it's like there's going to be a lot of anxiety around elections, um, just the mechanics of it. And so one thing that I always say, like whenever like we're talking about registering to vote, like it's not just about registering to vote. You need to make a literal plan to the T. Um, like yes. you need to call your you need, you need to let your employer know, hey, I want to vote, but um, the lines might be long. So I can't just be gone for my lunch hour. Like I might need to be gone for like two to three hours to make sure my vote gets in. Um, if you have kids, you want to like arrange for caretaking, you know, like it maybe there might be long lines. And so you don't want to like just leave because there's a long, a long line, like bring water with you, bring your medicine with you. You know, if that, that's something that you need, um, bring a fully charged phone. Cause if you're just standing there in line, you, you know, you could look up what's actually be, what's actually on the ballot, um, fill out a ballot ahead of time so that when you get there, you're not overwhelmed by all of the boxes and you've actually had a chance to look at what it looks like before. I mean, I remember like like one of my um, my mom's friends. She voted for the first time, like in the in the in the primaries, and she was so nervous. She she's an immigrant woman. She's like never. Um, she doesn't even she doesn't speak English very well. Um, she literally did not know who to vote for at all. And she um, I mean, we don't even know that she was planning to vote, but she basically called my mom like the day of, like saying, "I want to vote, but I don't know how." Wow. You know, and and we had helped her with her voter registration. But what the mistake that I realized we made was we didn't actually help her write down a plan. We didn't say, go to this address, bring this paperwork with you just in case. We didn't say, like, you, this is what is actually going to happen. And so, like, it was it was very like I, I literally like got off of work. I like took my lunch break and I was talking to her on the phone. I was like, OK, auntie, um, OK, drive when you get there, call me. And then I called, and then she called me, and then like I basically like helped her go through the whole ballot, explained to her like things, but it was me explaining it from like my room, <laughs> and like it's not there was nobody at like the polling place necessarily explaining anything to her, um, and so like that I think that's just like an example of, I think you know that is the experience that everybody goes through, and that I wish we didn't have to go through just to exercise our right that we have and the power that we have to essentially control like how our lives are going to turn out in the next couple of years like that's what elections are you are making active decisions on how you want your community to look like in like a couple of years and i'm not just talking about presidential election i'm talking about local election those people that that you know that you vote for like they are going to be the ones determining a lot of things that impact you know just what you see on a day-to-day -day basis on your street um and people i think that connection is so hard like I think about how my family interacts with elections too, and it's like, it's, it, there's a disconnect. They think voting is one thing, but they don't realize that voting for that person can translate into this actual thing that has occurred in our community. 
you know? Um, and so, yeah, anyway, that was like a rant. But, like, um, I, 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 but going off of that, like, I think it's hard, especially in communities of color, because there's a lot of um, yeah. cynicism that I'm, I'm, I'm holding my cynicism gun. I'll, I'll be drawing that shortly, totally. but like, we'll hold on to that. But like, um, communities of color, not just like, let alone the Republican Party, which is like, lied to them as well as they've lied to everyone and promised them things they weren't going to get. But like, Democrats have also done their fair share of promising things that they had, Democrats have no intent of delivering on, um, saying that they would defend these communities while like secretly and covertly approving measures to spy on these communities or um, over police these communities. And so there's a lot of healthy and also unhealthy skepticism um, within a lot of cultures. And even then, like, I think what you were even getting at right there is how important it is to build a plan around voting. And by plan, it's like, not just getting up there to vote, but also knowing what your ballot looks like, who is potentially running, because um, there's also the experience of being overwhelmed by how much there is to vote for. Like there's all these, in California especially, there's propositions and there's judges and council chiefs and all this different stuff. So it helps to utilize whatever is in your state. Um, as far as like voter guides go, usually the secretary of state for whatever state you're in has um, voter information on their website and you're like county secretary of state as well. Um, a lot of people get mailed out voter guides as well as I know. So I think that's really important to like... Um, make a plan for election day so that you are able to, if possible, um, get time off of work and uh, allow yourself that space to vote or take care of kids or whatever, but um, also know what you're going to do once you get in there and to make that a process as easy as possible. I also emphasize um, vote by mail if it's not too late to do that, although in many states it is. Um, and that's like a whole mess too. But mainly like if we're going through like the four parts of um, hold the line and the action document that is um, available in the description of the video version of this podcast as well as the um, show notes. But um, mainly other than as far as still the pre-election part of things go, other than making a plan to vote, is there any major um, thing people can do like volunteering as a poll worker or um, anything else like that for like holding the line? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so the first two things I would say are definitely like register to vote, make a plan to vote, and then help other people register to vote and then make a plan to vote. And then the third most important thing I think is signing up to be a poll worker. So this is like a new thing. It's not a new thing, but I think around more than 50% of poll workers in the 2016 election were like over 61 years old. And with COVID-19, um, a lot of older folks, like it is dangerous for them to essentially be out there. Um, and so we are going, to, I, what we are anticipating is we're gonna see a shortage in poll workers across the country. Um, just to give like a case example, which is actually outlined in the guide, but I think it's like, a, it shows like a very clear, it, it clearly really shows the impact of poll workers in the election. Um, so in, um, in Milwaukee, um, in uh, which is in, in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, in the 2016 election, there were 182 polling places that were open, um, and this was like obviously before COVID, right? Um, and so at this primary that just happened, um, it went from 182 to five because of the fact that there were not enough polling workers and polling places needed to be consolidated. And so we're anticipating across the country, this is definitely going to happen. Um, especially in areas where the normal population of poll workers who um, often volunteered were older. And so it's kind of like up to the young people here. Um, we got to like turn out. <laughs> I, I, I'm still kind of, be a poll worker. I'm blown yeah. 
out by your statement of going from like 182 or some number like that to five polling stations in the entire city. The city of Milwaukee, which like for Wisconsin, it's a fairly um homogenous state, let's say. It's a large state. It's a homogenous state largely, except for those like urban centers in those urban areas. Um, Kenosha, Wisconsin is another one of those like sort of examples and outliers there. So these poll closures are happening in places where... Um, it's very deliberate. These poll closures are happening in places where um, people of color are more likely to turn out and vote, turn out and vote to overturn the power establishment. And also, it's not just people of color, just like um, regular like, working class white folks who were also put um, down the ringer of capitalism in this case and are taught mm -hmm. to pit themselves against um, other people of color to distract from the fact that rich people are looting the system. But enough about that. Um, and in Milwaukee, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. In Milwaukee, actually, like the turnout um, for in the primary this year, it went down by 37%. So, like, Jesus. yeah, that's huge. Like, those types of margins will be the difference between, I mean, yeah, between like who actually wins this election. <clears throat> in a swing state um, like Wisconsin, it's definitely like on the board. A lot of like um, people on the left, if we're doing like a journal right now of this time being in like late September. Mm -hmm. People were decreeing, oh, Joe Biden's going to sweep and do really well in all these swing states. He might even pick up Texas and et cetera. And maybe he will, maybe he won't. But I, I, I've learned the hard way um, to not um, lean in and let my guard down when polling shows the favorable things in general. I just like there's so many factors going on this year, especially that are working against the vote that um, even I mm -hmm. as like a smug uh, California, Los Angeles voter in a very deeply blue district who would usually use this opportunity to um, not care about the top of the ticket and vote extremely down ballot. I'm worried about making sure my ballot counts when I know other people's won't. So I'm taking even my vote more seriously. So it's, it's, it's rough times. Um, and yeah. if it's okay, I think I want to move on to like kind of part two. Because I think that's where, I mean, at least like for me, it gets really juicy. I've hold the line. So, um, Part two is kind of just like election day scenarios. It posts a bunch of different scenarios for what could happen on election day, what um, the potential power players, let's say, um, could do at this time. And so I I've had a, a track record on this podcast of being like a doomsayer about saying election day is going to be a shit show. We're not going to have a definite like winner on the night of and anyone who tries to be a winner on the night of is probably trying to do some um spin to get ahead of the game because that's really powerful to claim yourself to be the victim when you're not actually the victor hashtag beat Buttigieg. but like there's going to be that issue that's happening there's going to be a lot of people who are um there's going to be a lot of votes coming in especially from california so like i think it's going to be a mess and i wouldn't be surprised if there's like um protests slash riots in the streets after this, unfortunately, because of our political climate. Um, but <laughs> are you possibly able to grace our listeners and viewers with some rosier scenarios for what could happen on election day? Or am I just on the right path? Um, you're on a plausible path. <laughs> but, you, heard, um, you heard it from an expert. That's just not just me. I heard it from an expert now. So I, <laughs> Um, so there's like, so we outlined three scenarios in the guide. Of course, there are multiple other scenarios that could totally play out. Um, 
And the reason we went with these three particular scenarios because they're kind of like more general buckets of what could actually happen. Um, so I can like break them down real quick. So the first scenario is um, election day results are super unclear and then Trump just declares victory anyway. Um, and so this kind of like this would kind of look like, you know, like mail in ballots are still coming in. Right. They haven't been counted yet. But Trump has already like set the stage for saying that mail in ballots are like fraudulent, you know. So there's like, you know, opportunity for him to kind of play out. Um, this scenario. Um, there's like a lot of other scenarios that could go down too. Um, like even if he like if the election day results are unclear, ballots are still coming in. Um, Attorney General Bill Barr could could jump in and basically start an investigation into the Biden campaign, halting the counting of the ballots, um, confiscating the ballots. Um, Postmaster DeJoy can essentially slow down delivery of the mail-in ballots and deliver them a little too late to be counted. Um, there's like a lot of things that could essentially happen, but the main thing is that um, this is a scenario where nobody really knows who the winner is. Votes are still being counted here and there, and there's also accusations in the air that um, the votes are invalid and that Biden is essentially trying to cheat. Um, and so the line that we outlined that we want to hold essentially with this scenario is that every vote needs to be counted without interference or intimidation. And this particular line, we can actually start holding starting today. So we can start organizing proactively before and then also organize the day of election day and then from election day to inauguration day. Um, so that's like the first scenario. Um, the second scenario is around like the election results show that there's like a lot of irregularities or like signs of signs of tampering and stuff. There has been evidence in this in this country in, in previous election years, like there have been evidence of like electronic voting machines switching their votes. I think there was like there was like a story about like Indiana in Indiana that like the vote, the votes were constantly being switched for multiple elections. Um, and that is very likely to happen again. Um, there's other questions around like in, in, in areas where there is an even split between Republican and Democrat um, voters. Like there could likely be irregularities where like the like there's a huge like a Republican win, um, and doesn't that type of margin doesn't it make sense? Or like there's more people that voted than actually exist in like the county, for example. So the other scenario that we kind of outlined is there could be a chance that different ir irregularities could show up, and as everyday people, it's on us to make sure that those irregularities are investigated um without any type of um without any interference and that they're investigated fairly um and immediately um so, so that's like scenario number two and if, i guess the line to hold yeah go ahead if i could just pause there for a moment like what mm -hmm. what is the difference between um like a bill bar style we're gonna try to rush in and take power as we're coming in and um the, the Trump camp trying to muddy the waters about what is an election irregularity versus what we should see as a, hey, there's something that there's some madness going on in Cuyahoga County or whatever. And so we've got to like investigate that. Like how should um, a regular concerned person just kind of like understand what the difference is? Is it the source or like how would it be able to tell? I think that I, I don't think it necessarily has to do with whether or not, I guess, like what. I guess like what Trump is doing necessarily like I think the what it goes down to is as a regular person you have power over your locality you you have power not that you have power over your election officials but you can identify who the election official is in your county you can like remind them starting now that it's their constitutional duty to make sure that the vote is counted fairly 
um, and that they need to do everything in their power to make sure that votes are counted fairly, essentially. So you can like put pressure that way. So I think the, the bottom line is where you are, you you need you should be watching for those irregularities that pop up. So that does require doing some homework. And like what Trump may be doing during like all this is possibly going to happen at the same time, right? Like these scenarios aren't like distinct scenarios. Like they could possibly all happen together at the same time too. There's a lot um, of overlap for sure. There's there's a lot of overlap. So Trump could definitely possibly be trying to do like you know like Bill Barr could totally like like go in and try to confiscate different. Um, different ballots, et cetera. But if that's happening in your county, you can stop him. Um, like there are election officials who can stand up to Bill Barr and to like Trump, you know? And so knowing who those people are and applying pressure to those people is what you can do in all of these scenarios. And that's essentially what we outline later on in the guide of from the from where you're at, like who are the power players? Who are the people that you can start figuring, you figure out, you need essentially figure out who they are and then what can you do to hold them accountable and also make sure they do the right thing. And for a point of clarification here, like the guide is essentially like a guide to protect democracy. It's not a guide to get Biden elected. Um, obviously, like we have very grave concerns if Trump would get elected and that is not a scenario that we would like. Um, but if Trump gets elected legitimately through a fair election, then, I mean, we are still upholding democracy. Um, and, and, so, and so the point of this... I, sorry, I, I, I know there even might be some folks in the audience who are like, the, the democracy was never legitimate in the first place. And like, there are, there's a... Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm not going to wholly disagree with that statement either, but I think it is just wholly delusional at this point to um, look at the threat that Donald Trump is posing to the limited structures that do exist. I mean... I'm holding out hope in something that's likely not going to come to fruition the way I want it to. But I'm still holding out hope that like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and like maybe a Democratic majority in the House and possibly in the Senate, although not likely. I'm hoping that they at least have like a country to run when all is said and done. But like it's very mm -hmm. clear what happens if the um, Republicans are able to keep power. Um, it's even very clear what happens if they're even able to fill a Supreme Court seat. It's a disastrous. So um. Not to derail you again. Right. Like, I think it's just like that's very important. And I totally agree. And with the folks who are saying that, I'm I actually completely agree with you. Like what we have left of democracy is like a tiny little like sliver, to be quite honest. Um, like we voter suppression has been happening for like years, for centuries. Um, and like people don't a lot like ever, technically everyone in this country has not actually had access to influence this country and make decisions for their future. Right. And so democracy has failed people down like democracy in the way it has been run so far has definitely failed in this country multiple times. But what we're talking about here is we're kind of at like the last line here. And once this line gets this line, essentially, once this line gets crossed, getting back on the other side will be even more difficult than we've already had to deal with. And I, we've already seen like how like the effect of like Trump in, in power and like what he's done to already destroy democracy bit by bit. But this is kind of like. I don't know. This is like the what's like in the games. The oh my god, I'm totally in the sports. <laughs> in the sports. <laughs> Anyways, whatever. This is like the this is the this is basically not, not to be like doomsday again. And I know 
I know you resonate with me in this respect, but this is basically the end, essentially. Um, and so this is the, essentially the line we need to hold. And then the other thing I do want to make a point of, the tactics and the instructions we basically outline in this guide, they're not just meant to be used to like protect the 2020 election and then everybody go to sleep after. Like What we are doing is building democracy insurance. Um, we are starting out now to build it out now, but like the, the effect of organizing in this particular way will create groups and communities who are going to be more engaged, who are going to be able to understand the system a little bit more. And that in itself is going to bring us closer to getting to a better democracy than we've had before as well. So getting into part three a little bit, um, what could you explain to the audience what election protection groups are? So like those are the scenarios that we just like kind of see are potentially there. And of course, we encourage um, folks to check out the full guide to get all the detailed information um, that there's a lot in there. But like any question you have will probably be answered by that document if you look into it. But um, yeah, what you could you explain for the audience what election protection groups are? Yeah, so we call them election protection groups because it's essentially like what you're doing. You are protecting the election. Um, and it, honestly, it's literally just a group of people um, getting together doing homework together essentially, doing their research and figuring out who the players are in their area that they can hold accountable to stop Trump from cheating his way to another four years. Um, and essentially like responding. And so that can, so we break it down into two different like phases essentially. Um, well, not two different phases. There's like four different steps actually that we outline. Um, and obviously there will be more steps that will be needed, but these are the first four steps you can take essentially to get yourself set up. So like step one is create your team. And by team, it doesn't mean like you're gonna like have to like recruit like a, like 20 different people. Like you and one other person is still a team, honestly. Um, and the fact that you're even gathering together to even start having a conversation around this is getting us still closer to protecting our democracy to be quite honest. Um, our biggest flaw in like, like losing our democracy is the fact that we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about our systems enough. We don't like make it a normal part of our conversations. We don't make the structures and the systems a normal part of our conversation. And that's why we're like so removed from it now. Um, but anyway, so that's step one, um, create your team. Step two is make a response plan. And in the guide, we kind of like outline like how to go about that. Um, step three is like figuring out roles amongst your team and then starting to recruit support amongst your co local community. And then step four is like getting preparing yourself to execute essentially if um, based off of like your response plan. Um, the step two, I think, is like the most important one. Um, this is like where like traditional organizing, this is where we all kind of put our organizing brains together and this is what organizers essentially do. Um, like when you want to solve for a problem, you figure out who the people are who hold power. Then you put them like on a map and you figure out, okay, like, can I influence this person? Can I not influence this person? What is the research behind all of these individuals? And then you figure out who is the one individual that you need to talk to, to basically get to your goal. And so that is essentially what we do in step two of the guide. Um, we basically help you go through step by step of how do you actually go about figuring out who the power players are in your local community, who you need to talk to, like, who do you need to call? and tell them that you are concerned about what's happening. And then after you call them, what do you need to do if you see that the lines are being crossed both nationally and locally? Um, 
so yeah, so that's like a quick overview of the guide of, of the steps. <laughs> so, so it's really just like figuring out, you're like you're getting a team together. You're just kind of distributing the work because as I've talked about in some of my previous work, you when you're starting in an activist sort of space, it's very easy to burn out. Um, there's a study that it's not, I, I, it's hard to really replicate these kind of findings, but whatever they're out there, about 50% of the people who um, burn out from activism just like quit and never return to it. So you want to create a sustainable, lasting sort of thing. You're even talking about earlier about how a lot of the stuff talked about in Hold the Line can um, be very useful uh, after election day, after inauguration day for whatever happens in the future. These are good building blocks for that. So having that team of minimum two, but as many as you can work with and manage and yeah. create a symbiotic, uh, helpful like relationship with um, are definitely useful for that. And then from there, building out a plan as far as um, what are the key power players, whether it's um, a mayor or chief of police or like whatever quasi accountable people that exist that you can keep mm -hmm. accountable, that you can hold pressure to really keeping in mind that at the end of the day, these people um, who are elected in power feel accountable because I haven't felt the pressure of attention yet. And by showing them more attention and actually making them fear for their jobs at minimum, um, mm -hmm. that there can actually be progress done in history has shown that pretty well. So I think that's all very good to like kind of get together and lay out for people and really kind of condition people to bring in and have. Um, <laughs> and now is for my like Womper question. And it's not like a really like major thing. It's just like my... I guess the thing I've been most um, hit by with 2020, um, that's a dramatic statement, but I'll go with it. The thing I've been hit most with in 2020 is not necessarily that there are all of these calamities, like there's uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, there are the fires that are going on, there's racial injustice, there are the crimes that are happening at our southern border. All this stuff is going on, and it's not that it's all going on right now. All this stuff has been in the making and in a relatively public eye for years. It's not like I'm the first one hearing about this. It's not like a lot of the people who have been politically engaged for the past year, two years, five years, decade, decades are just hearing about all this stuff. It's just that, yeah, all the very conservative fears of the political scientists and social scientists and economists and everyone else what they were predicting were like, oh yeah, these trends are going to get worse and at some point it's going to come to a head. And it, it has now. We're seeing all this stuff happening. And like I said, the thing that's made me most kind of upset with 2020 is that um, we, as a society, um, allowed it to get to this point and we're kind of responding with complacency. And a lot of that complacency has to do with the fact that we all work like nine to five jobs, or many of us work nine to five jobs that burn us out. Those that don't work jobs or don't work steady jobs are burned out looking for jobs or burned out by the economic or social um, or psychological pressure that creates because our society ties having a job to having the ability to live through like health insurance and mm -hmm. having a home and all these other things. So like, I guess maybe the darker version of me is what I'm trying to say is that I think these are the kind of things that like revolutions get started over. Not bloody revolutions, but like people choosing to strike for days on end until their demands are met. People saying, we're not going to allow you to evict people in a crisis. You're going to like make it work for people or else we're going to like close down the eviction courts or something like that. Whatever, like, why aren't these like daily mass movements going on in the streets? And like, I thought I saw some of that during the George Floyd demonstrations and people were saying, wow, people's minds are changing. These um, protests are going on for days and days. The police are getting overwhelmed. They're tired of going out there every single day. We might be actually breaking them. And I was just like, 
no, <laughs> you're not going to, because there's nothing more powerful than the drug of American exceptionalism. With that comes individualism, the idea that everyone can work by themselves and make it through society. And even when we see that very clearly not happening, I think that's the hardest thing to kind of deprogram from people is this idea that we can only function as individuals. We can't cooperate as a collective and get anything done. And so I think that's going to be a lot of the difficult process is like in hold the line, you provide a framework for power and activism and it's really cohesive and it's really good there. But like, I almost have to, in my darkest moments, especially this year, wonder like, will this, are the people ready for it is basically what I'm saying. Like, how do you convince the public that is so complacent and sort of, so like jaded by everything that's going on other than like creating a pressure cooker situation, which is going to end up being really violent. How do you really like, it's kind of the question we had in the beginning. How do you really motivate people to take that next step and decide that, okay, I need to be active. I need to start um, reading some plans and making organization because this is like do or die for the entire system that I know and love. I would say, I, I think what's really interesting is that so one thing, one interesting that you've said, uh, interesting thing that you, you mentioned was people are complacent despite seeing all of these atrocities around them. Um, like even like people who are directly impacted, you know, like this, this even if th those folks who are, you know, getting evicted right now or like other like communities who are watching it happen, everyone, every, nobody really seems to be taking action a lot of the times. And I think that actually has to do with a strategy that the oppressor does a really good job of. And that is making you feel like it's your fault. Um, often like, and this kind of goes in line with like how capitalism kind of works, like this whole idea of like, pull yourself up from the bootstraps and everything. Um, like, it's your fault that you're not making enough money. It's your fault that you're homeless. It's your fault that, you know, you're sick and you, you, I don't know, the, you can't get seen like at the hospital. I think that type of narrative is what kind of, once you realize that it is not your fault and explicitly, explicitly start saying it is a, it is an individual that made a decision to stop you from making enough money. It is a corporation that made that active decision to take away your health care. I think like once you start using active voice instead of passive voice, um, you start seeing that like, it's not your fault. Like it is other, these systems and these individuals, frankly, are the ones attacking you on a regular basis every single day. And once you see someone who's starting to attack you, I feel like you realize, oh, wait, like it is, th this is not my fault. Like I can actually, that somebody else is hurting me and I can stop them. Um, is I think like the the thought process that we need to start going towards and away from like you know for example like um, like the black the black community is just dis has disproportionately has higher um, like mortality rates like that is passive voice what we should be saying is, is like individuals in the black community are being killed through like the the deliberate cuts in funding to healthcare like. Yeah. There's a change in, in how we talk about things that needs to happen. And it needs to be away from victim blaming. It needs to be away from blaming the individual that's actually dealing with the problem because it's not their fault. It's not like, I, I hate saying like, oh, you didn't go out to vote. 
and you're the one who like didn't make the right decision or, or I don't know, like it's like you, you were being lazy. No, they didn't go out to vote because they were prevented from voting because they work a nine to five job um, where like if they do not show up to work, they will literally get fired and not be able to put food on their table. You know, like it's not their fault. Um, and, and once you tell them it's not your fault and that somebody's out to get not, not that somebody's out to get you, but kind of somebody is kind of out to get you. Um, I think it wakes something up in people because and I'm speaking from personal experience. I think it woke something up in me, like um, just realizing that. Like, you know, my like, quote unquote, success or like the way like my family grew up, it's not my family's fault. Like they are not less than. Um, and have, going through that realization, I think, really woke that up. And it just made me want to actually do something about it. Because it actually, I think it's empowering, actually, to know that it is not your fault. <laughs> and then it gives you that drive to figure out, okay, well, if it's not my fault, well, I'm going to stop you from making, like, making my life worse. Because I, you know, this is something that I can do. Um, I don't know. That's, like, that's how I kind of approach, like, some of those thoughts. Um, and that I feel like that is what, that's kind of, like, what's worked for me. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I like a lot of where that's coming from. I think that kind of transition, it's such a very simple thing, the way you put it, but like active to passive or passive to active voice. It's not that, oh, these things are happening and that's just, you know, life's unfair. It just happens to people. No, these are mm-hmm. actual results. Like as I, I was just saying, these are the results of things that we've been tracking in society for decades, we can look at systemic racism, we can look at um, sexism, we can look at poverty, we can look at all these different things as a trend. And we can also look and say, huh, isn't it really interesting that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have made billions of dollars this year alone, while many of their workers at their companies are struggling, or many of them are suffering? Like, mm-hmm. how, how is it that the, the, the system isn't fair? And of course, life doesn't have to be fair, but our system is something that is created by people. And I think we've just lost a lot of agency in that through, um, I think, years of conservative propaganda, for sure. But um, I I think a lot of the antidote to that, I think you're right, is to say, like, no, just as easily as we've been sold the propaganda of American exceptionalism, we've also been sold the propaganda of uh, the government is big and unaccountable and you can't do anything about it. No, I mean, it is big and many times it can... um, overgrow its control and it's very close to becoming out of our control but um it's designed with a lot of kill switches really it's designed with a lot of different ways to kind of go in there and yes it's kind of labyrinthine and kind of archaic to go through all of the systems but um we can use the power that we have as a people unify to pull mm-hmm. our resources and pull our knowledge into overcoming these systems and battling these systems and i think Another way we can really learn is like off of um, history and learn what people did before us, even yes. in recent history. So I was actually going to ask oh, yeah. like the most logical comparison I kind of have, even if I'm coming off the top of my head as to like what this kind of is without, while also noting that it's going to sound like a pejorative just based off of what we've come to in this country now, is that this seems like a lot of what the best intentions of like the hashtag resistance and the... Um, what is it called? The indivisible groups did at least early on where they're like, we're going to um, protest the inauguration. We're going to have the women's march. We're going to have these like early shows of force for the Trump administration that seemed like they did good at, you know, signs and protest and discourse. But when it came towards like the next step that you're like seem to be kind of getting at of like claiming real and tangible power, those movements fell short. And then like 
they became a pejorative of like doing that, of promising a lot and trying to whip up a frenzy, but ultimately falling short and caving in to many of the same pressures that got us to this issue in the first place. So is there anything you think you can learn from movements like Indivisible or um, things like that that have even happened as um, counter insurgencies to the Trump administration? And do you think that's something that Hold the Line can um, sort of help to remedy? Yeah, I think one of the, the most powerful movements that have had sustained impact for years to come, I think are led by those who are directly impacted. I think one of the places where like the Women's March and like other, you know, efforts fall short is that they they didn't represent like the most impacted people in this country. Um, like those people were not involved, honestly. Um, like I'm always fascinated by conversations I have with white women, for example, at how confident they are in like just being able to get something done or get like an elected official to listen to them and then I go and I listen to like my my mom's like auntie friends and it's just like it is a completely different narrative like like they're experiencing completely something something so different because that that indivisible guy just didn't land in front of their their in, in their world it's, it's just not a part of their world and no one really tried to put it in their world um and I, I think that is one of the biggest flaws like those communities, nobody really made an effort to put those resources and these tactics and these strategies, put it in their world and translate it to for them to use. I mean, like, like I think about I, I speak I, I speak a lot from like my own immigrant like parent experience. Um, like my family, like like our families knew, like they know what movement is, like they know what resistance looks like, they know what like holding like a government accountable looks like. But when they come here, it's like completely like foreign to them, right? But nobody tried to like invite them to the party, you know, um, or even let them be a part of the party if they were trying to do it themselves, you know? So I think that's the biggest flaw. And I think I don't have an answer, I guess, to like how the hold the line guide is essentially going to not do what those other guys did. I think, the, I, I guess the, my answer is get in front of the people who are directly impacted in this country and get this guide in front of them and make it work for them and accessible to them. Like that is like my goal, <laughs> honestly. Like and I, that is like, I, I also just need to figure that out too. I think we as a group are still figuring that out. Like, how do you actually do that? If you think about it, like the people that wrote this guide, there's like three Desi people in that group and like one white guy. Um, <laughs> and like, uh, that, like most of them are with, with a wide, like very, like, you know, with difference in ages and stuff. Um, like slightly different economic backgrounds, but obviously we're not representative of like the most directly impacted people in this country, right? Um, and so the, it, this is a challenge that we are constantly coming up against. Like, how do you actually get something like this in front of those people in a way that's not like um, colonizing them, honestly? <laughs> I think like a lot of movements have like, you know, this subtle like version of like colonization that they still carry on with them. So that is a question that I, I mean, I have not figured it out yet either. Um, but I think that it, whoever figures that out, and hopefully we can figure that out once we do, like it will definitely solve for a lot of the problems that you talked about. Yeah, um, I, I think it's a, a big balance because even um, I notice as being like adjacent and seeing a lot of the strides that movements like Democratic Socialists of America have had in like building a political force, along with the downsides in that it is still struggling as being in a lot of places um, a very white movement and a movement that is led still very top down instead of bottom up as we would like um, a more like equitable sort of like organization of movement to be. 
um, there's always that question of like um, organization versus disorganization. That could be like a separate podcast we could both do and talk to about in great lengths, I'm sure. But um, I, I, I think about like, how do we break past this extremely online, super hyper-focused into politics bubble that like, for lack of a better mm-hmm. phrase, like you and I, and um, at least half the people who are going to end up seeing this guy are going to be a part of. And I think it's just about making sure that, you know, like, sports fans talk to other sports fans, more particularly like hockey fans talk to other hockey fans or like basketball fans talk to other basketball fans, but usually like political people only talk to other political people. When instead that's our problem, we need to expand the political universe. And that means uncomfortable conversations or even comfortable conversations with people you haven't talked to or who are your neighbors or your coworkers or people who you think you could move the needle on any of these issues to help them say like, hey, um, politics is like an active thing and even if we disagree on some issues here or there we can unite on like the most important ones about um class injustice and racial injustice and all the other like sort Mm -hmm. of um social inequality issues in this country and um fight to at least have a level or playing field for where we do disagree um I, i think just like what you're saying right there that figuring out where to break outside of our own existing bubbles when we're educating other people about these things is like the next frontier for these things and comedy has worked a little bit um different forms of doing a political thing like some people like uh the weekly or these other things like that and i hope powerpoint's one of those as well but um yeah that's i think that'll be the next big frontier is like how do you expand the universe of political um politically engaged people who are willing to make this step beyond like armchair activism and really get involved. Yeah. And I think like, if you look at the history of movements, they weren't based off of political people talking to political people. It was literally like your neighbor checking up on you and just yeah. making sure you were okay. Or like, you know, like your, your coworker or something like, like the farm workers movement, for example, like all the coworkers got together and they did something together, you know? And so it's like it, you all people, my tip actually for, for, for watchers or, this is a podcast, yes. So, um, listeners. And watchers, because we, we have video too, but whoever's It is a video audience, podcast, yes. right. So, my tip for watchers and listeners and anyone who picks up this guide is actually challenge yourself to go outside of that comfort zone and knock on your neighbor's door, um, find the people who you interact with on, in your daily life. Like, I don't know, like if you see like that, the same person you walk by on the street, like every Saturday for your walk, like, I don't know, the, the barista who like makes your coffee, um, or like, you know, like, or, or, or if on, or if like the customer that you see, like at your job or something, like literally like, the regular people that show up in your life, um, that you have like these subtle traditions with in a way, reach out to them because you already have a relationship with them and community organizing doesn't start with issues. It starts with relationships. And that is what we've seen throughout history. That's what all the research shows. People are not actually like, people don't join organizations because they're just passionate about the issue. They oftentimes actually join them because they're gonna find community in there, in in that organization. And they're gonna find a place where they feel welcomed. And so that is what, that's the tip I would just give to people like, have those conversations with the regular people in your life and don't just go find like the one political person that's already on your side, essentially, and already thinking about these things. <clears throat> yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, like we said about just expanding the political universe, but also like 
when you are doing the work, the tough work um, of actually doing activism, it helps when you have a community of people you're working with who like you don't hate and you like uh, agree with on certain yeah. things and um, <laughs> you can actually work together on stuff. Um, it turns out that's helpful to run an organization when you do those things, take notes, Congress. But like it, it's, I think it also getting at that aspect that we in a lot of ways are lacking a lot of sense of community in this country. I think again, because of, American exceptionalism, hell of a drug. Like we learn to be individualist, and even that kind of mindset teaches a lot about like religious fundamentalism, and it really centers like Christianity-centric sort of like ideology in its way of being an individual American. But yeah, we even with COVID notwithstanding, we have fewer places where people can get together and um, really spend time as a community. I mean, work isn't really that place because the power dynamics are kind of off. Um, yeah, it's not really like that really exists at um, bars or a lot of social things and many of those other social things where people just usually just randomly meet together are not really in existence because of COVID. So um, activism is the next fun thing to do to get closer to your community, I guess, but it's also just something that's like um, more fun and more productive than being on like your neighborhood watch or your um, local housing um, homeowners association. That's the phrase I'm looking for. Um, mm-hmm. This has been like a good example of like the four places of about hold the line. Again, holdtheLineGuide.com is where folks can kind of find information about this. But as we kind of wind down, we kind of covered the gamut of not only what hold the line is, but kind of the aspects of what it takes to make that next step and become someone who is engaged more in active spaces. And we touched about this um a little bit with your own experience and your own personality and like what brought you into this. And I'm glad that you can have that kind of um, experience to show off of and talk of and use that to inform the guide that you've created because now you're teaching other people how to do it themselves. So I guess that's why I kind of wanted to go into just to wrap up is like, what was your journey into deciding that, okay, I know that a lot of people aren't going to take the steps that I'm going to take, But not only am I going to be someone who is engaged in politics, but I'm going to work to engage other people as well. Like how people don't usually start like that. So like, what was your um, like awakening, I guess? (laughs) Yeah. And I'll I'll say, actually, it was a very gradual process. I um, I think when people think of politics and like these types of issues and and whenever we have conversation on these types of things, they think that you want to become like a politician or something. And that's not true. Like I came in, I basically after graduating from college did not want to be a politician, but I wanted to do something that basically got rid of the injustices around me because the injustices pissed me off. And they were very like, they really impacted me a lot on an emotional level. And so my first step was actually, okay, like what can I do to just like do my part in helping to remove some of these injustices or make them less intense? Um, Like that was like literally my first step. It was not, it it didn't start off as like, I want to get involved and I want to then get the whole country involved. (laughs) It was, I think what happens is you take that first step around. This is something that really hit home for me because it's either connected to my childhood or like to my life or people I care about. And I, I can't, I can't just stand here and watch it continue. And I think that was the first step. Like, I just cannot continue doing like just watching. And so I, you know, taking that first step means, okay, I want to figure out how to not just stand here and just watch the injustice from happening. And so I think that is the first step that most people take of just, 
I need to do something. I don't know what it is, but I need to do something. And then as you take the first step, you realize, okay, I'm actually good at this um, naturally. And I like doing this. And so I'm going to continue doing it. And then once you start like getting more involved, um, I don't know if like you, you become like more of a leader in like your space, like you realize that you just learn things along the way. And you'll start to realize that you need to bring other people in to make like a lot of these movements work. And so I guess like what I'm trying to say is like when I first like decided to, I, I didn't actually decide to become an organizer. I think I accidentally became one. And I think a lot of people actually go through that experience. But the first step was really just wanting to just stop the pain, to be quite honest. I think that was really just the first thing. And I was lucky enough to find a path um, and then find mentors. And then like find a bigger vision and then realize that, oh, wait, there's like a whole system behind how organizing works. And, and then, I, you know, you get excited about it and then you realize that this is something that you can actually invest more and more of your time in. But what I guess what I'm trying to say is that everyone's journey in the world of movement building is very different. Um, and I think that this is super cheesy, but you really just have to follow your heart. <laughs> you have to find the place where your heart feels full and happy and also where you feel the power that you were looking for to stop that pain from hurting the people you care about. And if you are in, if you're feeling all of that, you're in the movement space and you don't have to be a part of like a big nonprofit to feel it. Like you could be feeling it in your neighborhood where you get together a group of people and you sit in, or, you know, you have a, you create a healing space in your living room. Like that's you being a part of the movement, you know? Um, it could literally be you and like, you know, like your old college friends having a reunion on Zoom or something um, and you talking about a very specific bill that hits home for you and maybe affects your parents that you want them to like vote around and also get all their family to vote around you. That's you being like an organizer, you know, that's you being part of the movement. Like, and I think that is where you start and then it will take you where you need to go. I know that sounds super vague. Um, in terms of like actual tangible things you can like access to, to go to where you want to go. Like, I think like, you know, like having conversations with people is step one. Um, there are a lot of organizations around you oftentimes like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, I think are great at helping people find those spaces. So find a space, like, you know, get to know them. If you feel like you fit in, keep working, volunteering with that nonprofit or that organization. If you don't, then go and find another one and just keep talking to people and finding your own, like figuring out where do you fit in into this movement um, is kind of like the big question that I think people kind of have to answer. Um, but yeah, that's how it worked out for me. Um, and I do like, I don't like creating like a full on formula for people because I think everybody is so different. Everyone has so many other things going on in their lives. And it's less about like you becoming an organizer and more about how do you fit in movement building into your life? Like it, cause it should be actually integrated into your life. It shouldn't just be like this, like side thing that you do, you know, and that's why it looks different for everyone. Cause everyone has different lives. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, it literally, I, I love everything you're saying. I, I agree with it a lot. Um, I especially resonate with the oftentimes you don't find out you're like you're becoming an organizer or a leader until like you've just been thrown into the position like you accidentally waltz into the position um yeah. as definitely a lot of situations I've done that to myself in before but um totally that's that's really good I guess but the last thing I guess I really want to get at because you made a good point that I, I I tried and I struggled a lot actually in my last video bad news about like how do I 
create a path for activism because everyone comes at it at a different way. But I also understand if you're new and you generally want to get involved, you it would help to have like uh, uh, activism explained article or something like that. So I try to do my best to yeah. present that. But yeah, it's really just about um, how you're able to plug in and network and get yeah involved with that group or that organization that works better with you. Um, and I'll link to my bad news video for like self-indulgence and also like more information about getting into that as well. But um, is there any other place that like you found as like a really good online resource that you kept coming back to for activists? Like this is kind of unrelated, but for voting, I highly recommend Ballotpedia. Um, it's like a pretty good um, reputable, like it's a lot of people who are checking it, source for different ballot measures and initiatives and people who are running around you but like that's very specific to voting as far as like there's no like wikipedia for like how to be a good leftist organizer but like are there any places where like you kept going back to this or back to a couple different resources like oh they have some really insightful things um because i think that'd be really Mm -hmm. great for the audience to also find out about as well yeah um so there's a lot of like organizing um trainings out there um the ones that I kind of started using was um, with Repower. Um, so they're like a really cool like training organization that kind of breaks down um, trainings for new organizers and people that are kind of new. Um, I think you have to pay for some of them, but like that's like if you're trying to be like a professional, but they have like a lot of resources on their website. Um, there's actually this book. Hold on. I'm gonna like find it real quick. One second. I'm like in my room right now. Um, yeah. So this book actually, so it's called, it's, this was with the Midwest Academy there's like this like organize another organizing institution but it's called um organizing for social change midwest academy manual for activists so it's like literally a manual um a lot of organizations use this actually uh, when they're training like new organizers um and i just it has like a lot of great like fundamental theories um that are really great there's also like a lot of researchers actually out there who do like a lot of research around how organizing works um Hari Han, for example, um, does like really great work around that. Um, I can actually, if you want, I can send a list of like suggested readings for like new people um, who are like kind of new to the space and new to organizing and want to like get their feet wet. Um, so I can definitely send that to you. That would um, be awesome. And with, I'll, I'll include that in the description of the video <laughs> and the show notes of the podcast um, if you're listening in the audience of that. But no, Miriam, thank you so much for um, spending your time with me and with the audience kind of really digging into, yeah, I guess I not just hold the line, but like how to actually like get your like hands and feet dirty and really get involved. Because I mean, that's what saving and preserving the semblance of a democracy that we have left is going to take. It's going to take folks like you and I um, and the people listening to really get involved and plug in wherever they can. So um, really fast, where can people find Hold the Line? Um, where can people find you? Anything else you like want to promote and let the audience know about? Yeah, um, we're going to be posting a lot more on social. So you can follow us at The Red Line on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and hopefully... And then the link to our guide is also on those social pages. So um, feel free to read those. And then again, like we um, we have an email on there too. So if you just want to talk to us, like we're available, like feel free to email us. We're happy to chat. Um, yeah. Awesome. Last question. What do you do to manage your time? <laughs> do I manage my time? I don't know. <laughs> That's the sneaky um, tough one I was talking about. You thought the tough question was earlier. No, no, no. I save it for last. <laughs> 
I know. I thought we were getting deep. And I was like, ooh, this is a tough question. Um, so I actually, I'm a bullet journal nerd. Um, part of the Bujo community. <laughs> this is the um, shit I loved I, about leaving San Francisco, by the way. <laughs> it's not hearing um, those abbreviations. I'm, I'm kidding. Continue. Go on. <laughs> All right, this is like such a California thing. Um, but I, um, yeah, I actually, I bullet journal. This is my bullet journal right here. I don't know if you can see it, but I'm like very proud of it. Okay, well, it's you probably can't see it. We can um, see but it, yeah. I, I, I use it to organize um, my day. I have like a tracker in there that tracks, this is so like horrible, but like I have a tracker that tracks my habits and every month I actually calculate my um the my uh my my success rates at like actually building up these habits because I I can track like how many days I did the thing and I didn't so I'm like I'm a scientist at heart um like you know so um I majored in biochem so my bujo is very much like a science experiment on me <laughs> that's how I organize my time <laughs> no I for, for for what it's worth I have um I basically treat Google Calendar as my Bible so much so that I have blocked out time in my day to just like check in with myself and make sure like I'm doing okay. Like like what do I need like mentally and physically? And like I've actually found that reminds me to do like wellness and like um what is it like self-presence kind of checks and make sure I'm doing well. But like I I, I totally vibe with you on that like meta yeah. experiencing myself and like meta planning <laughs> myself like it's it's a vibe this is why they send us to berkeley um definitely totally. not our, definitely not our parents paying money for it <laughs> it's like mom this is the one thing i learned <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed that interview. Thanks again to Miriam Navid and all the folks at Hold the Line Guide uh, for helping to get that together, for putting the guide together, and for um, actually having a plan to help save our country. Like I said, I'm not sure if we have or had really had a democracy for all of the people, all of the poor people, all of the people of color in this country to be f treated fairly, but whatever semblance of a democracy we had, whatever semblance of normalcy we had is really in our hands over these next coming days, weeks, and months. So um, make sure you check out Hold the Line Guide at the Red Line Guide on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and more information will be in the description links below or the show notes if you are listening to the podcast version. If you have guest ideas for activists or just political voices you think would be great to have a voice, uh, reach out to me. I'm Dan from the web on Twitter and Dan from the internet on Instagram. The show itself also has social media links. Those will be in the description or show notes. And uh, yeah, until next time, it's going to be a bumpy one. So hang in there, friends. <laughs>